Well, welcome in to another of our Edge Kingsland Lockdown podcasts, uh, talking about holiness with a W. And, uh, and today we are talking with, well, I am talking with Rod Begbie, who is a, well, how shall we describe you, Rod? A, a, uh, a, an expert on the body, isn't that what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were, we were saying that. I know everything there is to know about the body. Yes. Uh, so we're talking about embodiment, and Rod is a, a, a pastor or a church leader or something like that, and a collaborative mm. team uh, in, a, in a church in Melbourne called Fitzroy North Community Church, a church I've been to a, a number of times and um, have a lot of love for. And, of course, a lot of love for Rod, uh, who is a fine, fine man. Um, so right. thanks, Rod, okay. for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, so we want to talk a bit about embodiment, and I know you guys have been talking about the body a lot in your church community in recent weeks and months. Uh, and then ironically, we're sort of doing this in the least embodied way possible, I suppose, which is <laughs> recording a, a, a Zoom chat and then sending that out mm. online for people to listen to. But nevertheless, perhaps there are some things we can talk about that might be helpful. Mm. Um, I want to start the conversation with this idea that Embodiment, I suppose, has become a bit of a buzzword in, in recent times. It's, there's a renewed mm. emphasis on it in some streams of Christian faith um, and also beyond Christian faith as well in the West. Um, perhaps we could ask this question. Why do you think we are needing to talk about it now? Why, what, what, has, what has gone wrong for us, perhaps, is a way of saying this, in, in either Christian faith and perhaps in the Western mindset more Generally, that has led to this need for us to find all of these ways of talking about the body uh, and reclaiming a sense of embodiment. Um, can you maybe start there and we'll see where we go? Sure. Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking there's sort of lots of layers to that cake, um, some of them quite ancient. I think that the, in some ways throughout the history of the West, there have been lots of different variations on the same idea, and that is that our body is just this thing that carries us around, mm. um, us being a soul or a spirit or a mind or something, or even worse, that our body is this kind of negative evil thing that has um, our true self trapped. Um, and, you know, so that I think that started with certain forms of Greek philosophy back at the very beginning of the mm. church. Um, and so the church kind of inherited that and it kind of shifted the, the Jewishness of the church into something that was much more suspicious of the body and, and created that hierarchy, I guess, of the body being lower and the soul um, or the spirit being higher. And in some ways that sort of set the groundwork for things sort of getting almost worse and worse over time you mm. know, with the Enlightenment, um, doing the same thing, I guess, with reason and the mind um, elevating it over the body and seeing the body just as this source of difficult feelings or limitations and decay. Um, so in Christian culture, I think that's where we get that, that view of the body as a source of sin or of temptation that we need to, um, to control. Uh, and, and that's all without <laughs> talking about the effects of, of capitalism over the last couple of hundred years and that way that advertising and consumption and all of those things have distorted our relationship with our own bodies and complicated it and um, making us distrust our own bodies. So, uh, yeah. It's a, it's how do, a how do you think, just to bounce on that point for, for a minute, how do you think the capitalism and consumption has distorted our relationship with our body? In what, in what sense has it done that 
in terms of our relationship to our bodies? I think that um, the this, seeing our body as um, something that either produces or consumes, mm -hmm. um, I think it can um, yeah, turn our body into something that serves us or serves our desires rather than something having kind of uh, integrity of its own that needs to be respected. So the body as servant, I think, is a big product of that. Um, whether that's the body helping us to produce all the things that we need to produce or whether that's the body consuming things that we want it to consume, whether, whether it likes it or not, <laughs> I think that's a big a big part of it. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, you know, that, that's setting aside the, the way that advertising um, and it, the way it presents bodies can really distort our sense of what a normal body looks like um, or create this obsession with the surface of our bodies and no kind of relationship with what's going on inside our bodies. Mm. So those kinds of things, I mm. think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back to some of those as we, as we go along. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Cause there's some real interesting, <laughs> I haven't heard it put in quite those terms before, but the idea of being obsessed with the surface of our, of our bodies is such mm. an interesting way to kind of, and, and, and when you say it like that, you realize how th thin, so to speak, mm. that, that way of thinking about the body is mm, that we yeah. be obsessed with essentially what the surface area looks like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so how then do you think about what it is to be a human person? Then how do you how do you think about because because some of that idea of we're sort of we're a, and I grew up very much with a spirituality that said we're a we're a spirit that's sort of inhabiting mm. a body. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you come to think about what it is to be a human person? To think about the real us, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, like you, I, I think I grew up with that same kind of mindset that that the body was, the real me was sort of separate from my body and the real me needed to control my body. The mm. real me was this kind of disembodied mind and will. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to do now is to think of myself as as an integrated whole where my body is as as much um a part of that um i mean it's very it's very hard to do when we're so used to turning our bodies into objects that mm -hmm. we occupy um thinking of our body as an it um and so it's almost like we need these uh transition steps ultimately um not really having a sense of separation from our body our body is um is ourself but um in the meantime part of the shift might be to almost like try to cultivate a relationship with our body that you know um referring to our body more as as she or he or they um as a someone to have to to have conversations with and have relationships with um as a way of moving towards that sense of integration rather than kind of hierarchy mm. so that kind of um relationship with our bodies if you like is mm. is not an um another form of the kind of mind body dualism no. but instead is actually mm. moving us toward some kind of integration yeah um yeah. where we come to actually see our bodies as um an integrated part of what it means to mm. be us mm. um and even actually, the, i mean that idea of the obsession with the surface versus the depth it comes to some extent from um hillary mcbride who's a 
psychotherapist. I think she's Canadian and mm. the people that are familiar with the Liturgist podcast, she was part of that team for a while. Um, she, she talks a lot about that stuff and she, she also talks a lot about, um, yeah, cultivating that conversational relationship with your own body, actually um, asking your body for forgiveness, expressing love to your body, all of those kinds of things as, um, as a way of cultivating a healthier relationship that, as you say, ultimately is trying to draw your body in <laughs> to the centre of your sense of who you are. Mm. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that perhaps a bit more. What, what kind of relationship with our bodies can this invite us toward then um, mm. as, we, as we keep pushing in that direction? Yeah. It's funny, I was thinking about the metaphors that we have for the Trinity, the way, you know, for some some people the Trinity is very hierarchical with, you know, God, God the Father over the Son and all of that. Um, and then there's that idea of um, perichoresis, the idea of the Trinity as a divine dance of the different mm -hmm. parts of the Trinity in these um, constantly shifting relationships of um, call and response or action and reaction um and i do wonder whether um that's the kind of shift that we need to make in our relationship with our our body you know that rather than this kind of that hierarchical view having it as um this kind of this dance between the different parts of ourselves because even mm. if we see ourselves as an integrated self it's still yeah i think it's still helpful to um as with the trinity to have this sense of within our own body these these relationships that mm. um um of of talking and listening of um yeah yeah and but ultimately as a way of moving away from ignoring or controlling mm. our body um mm. yes i was thinking about um i you know i i as a younger man, obviously, you know, having now sorted through all of my issues, it's it's, it's a good place to be. But yeah, back right. when I used to have issues, um, you know, <laughs> I, I remember these feelings of, you know, anxiety or fear that would arise in response to certain situations that I would perceive as, as obviously was mm. perceiving as a threat of some kind. Mm. And they weren't threats. They were things like catching the bus or um, ringing someone on the phone or mm. um, something like that. Uh, and how kind of harshly I used to treat myself about the fact that that's what my that's what was happening in me that mm. the fact that I would freeze and not be able to yeah. do the thing you know freeze yeah. and not be able to call the person or freeze and the bus would go past me on the side of the road because I I couldn't bring myself to um to wave it down because of what that would mean in terms of being seen yeah. um yeah. And, and that kind of harshness that I took in response to my mm. my own body's response. Yeah, didn't really yeah. seem to help very much in actually <laughs> dealing with any of that. Yeah, And so, you know, as you're talking about that kind of dialogue, I think only really in recent times have I started to think about being able to recognise what my body was trying to do for me. That mm, yeah. Because for a certain set of probably quite understandable reasons, uh, I was interpreting these these things as possible threats and my body was yeah. trying to look after me. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, yeah. And even though in that moment that wasn't the thing that I needed, yeah. Um, that my body didn't know that my body yeah. was actually trying to look after me, and that changed yeah. the nature of the way I started to think about the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we had a we had a week on exactly that um, mm. that idea that our body is always trying to keep us safe, and that 
yes, parts of the way our body does that are very ancient and, mm-hmm. um, and so often counterproductive, you know, like in the time of COVID, often people are dying because of their immune response to the, to the virus. So it's like, uh, bodies attempts to keep us safe is sometimes what, what kills us, mm-hmm. but, but, um, yeah, realizing ultimately that our body is doing everything it can to keep us safe can firstly transform the relationship we have with our body. But as you say, it, it can, um, create a healthier way of managing those reactions that aren't serving us mm. and realize that perhaps by being kinder to my body, acknowledging why it's doing what it's doing, I'm more likely to get through to a place where, um, it's able to, to respond differently to those threats. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, in terms then coming back to this idea, circling back around to the kind of ongoing challenges that we face in terms of these day-to-day lives and relationship to our bodies, mm. the kinds of complexities and, and things that we've been sort of hinting at and, and, and bumping into along the way. Mm. Um, what do you think some of those big ones are? You've mentioned, I think, already things like sort of ignoring or controlling and, and stuff like that. Could you expand a little bit more on, on yeah. some of those um, yeah. pro- more problematic ways that we've related yeah. to our bodies? Well, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about the relationship that you had with your body growing up, um, I think it was interesting for someone like me whose body, my body really has served me so well um, for much of my life. And you would think that that would mean that I was really kind and grateful <laughs> to it. But um, I think, you know, as you say, our defaults are kind of, if it's doing what we expect it to do, we just ignore it and take it for granted. And and then as soon as anything goes wrong, we get super frustrated with it and feel like it's, it's letting us down. Mm. Um, so somehow um, I think, I mean, I think it all interacts. I think if we can start, listening to our body more, talking to our body more, um, understanding all the incredible ways in which it is keeping us safe and looking after us, then it, it means we can slowly move towards much healthier ways of um, responding to challenges that our body throws our way. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I've become obsessed with self-compassion over the last year and um, you know, all of these findings within psychology that being hard on ourselves never really serves us. We think that if, if we treat our body and treat ourselves mean, then it will rise to the challenge, but it never works out that way, that it's always kindness and compassion directed to the self, directed to the body that actually leads to flourishing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, again, any any ways that we can cultivate a kinder and more compassionate and more understanding relationship with our bodies is got got to got to be helpful and whether that's starting with simple ways of you know like referring to talking to our body more (laughs) um thinking of it as not as an it um all of those small steps i think can um help us to move to um both a healthy relationship with our body and and the capacity for a more embodied spirituality. Mm. So, thinking about embodied spirituality, where does where does kind of faith and spirituality intersect with this conversation? That you know, we began by talking about some of the ways in which 
Christian faith has contributed to unhealthy mm. attitudes to our body. Yeah. Um, is there a redeeming of that? You know, like is there a is there a way of of integrating a, a healthy relationship with the body with Christian faith and spirituality? You know, some people might read, for example, the New Testament and think Paul seems to go on a lot about you know spirit and the mm. flesh and how he beats mm. his body into submission and you know all this all this kind of stuff. Does you know is that is that essentially endorsing this very antagonistic approach to the body? Or how, how do you think about the, the intersection of faith and spirituality in this conversation? Yeah, I think like firstly you're talking about scripture, so <laughs> I think there. Are, two things with scripture. The first thing is that sometimes we are overlaying um, perhaps some of those more extreme hierarchies of body and spirit onto scripture, like when Paul's talking about the flesh is not necessarily talking about the body. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing too is that um, the Bible is full of different voices and different perspectives and different texts. And so it's also a question of re- kind of finding those texts within the Bible that do speak in, in more positive ways about embodiment. Uh, one of the passages that we looked at, um, which can be a very triggering one for people for all sorts of reasons, but was the, the second creation story in Genesis 2. Mm. Um, and while there are um, tricky things about that story for us, especially if um, we're in a church culture that's obsessed with sin and original sin. Um, the Hebrew is so embodied in that story of, mm. you know, the body formed from clay and God presented as a potter, God presented as a carpenter, God presented as walking in the in the garden in the cool of the evening. It's so incredibly embodied. And I think there's so much in Hebrew scripture which is so affirming of, of the body um, so it's partly finding resources in scripture that are much more embodied and much more affirming of, of the body. It's also, um, reconnecting with incarnation. I think, um, not seeing Jesus incarnation as simply this necessary step towards the mechanism of the cross saving us so we can leave our bodies and go to heaven and be disembodied, <laughs> but actually engaging with the, with the incarnation in a much more holistic way and realizing what an incredible affirmation of our embodiedness it is that Jesus took on flesh. Um, I think the other thing too, is just finding other voices, other forms of theology that are helpful, more helpful in moving towards a more embodied spirituality. I mean, one of those perhaps ironically is disability theology, um, which uh, is fantastically helpful at challenging our kind of desire through healing ministries or whatever to have these perfect bodies um, and leave behind all limitation and all disability and to say, no, the body is beautiful and loved as it is um, and that often what we want people to be healed of um, is actually just something which confronts our ableism and if we were much more inclusive and much more um, accessible as churches then what we're calling a disability wouldn't be a disability at all mm. um, the even that passage in in John where where Thomas where J- Jesus says to Thomas you know put your hand in my side you know that the fact that 
Jesus' resurrected body was a disabled body um, and yet glorious. Um, I think, yeah, uh, and I'm sort of jumping around, but there yeah, are just, so, I think, I feel like there are so many resources mm. out there. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of starting to, to find them and find voices that point to different parts of scripture that do lead to much more mm. healthier relationships with bodies and embodiment. Um, do you, let's dive into that a little more, perhaps even in terms of, you know, that, that text you're talking there and Jesus and his, and his woundedness that persists mm. post-resurrection in some form. Um, and, you know, what, what is the implication here? What, what, what is that telling us about, um, about what a good quote unquote body, um, is mm. in your perspective? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think it shifts the focus away from bodies. I, I, I think there's still, for example, there's still a place for, you know, prayer for heat, for physical healing and all of that within the church, but, um, to focus on, um, bodies in relationship and that, um, if, if we create churches and church communities where, um, people and their bodies can be in relationship with other people and other bodies that that's our priority and and healing is um if, if our focus with healing is on um dealing with the things in our communities that are an obstacle to bodies encountering other bodies bodies being in relationship with other bodies um then um then that's a much more one would think important form of healing than just this desire for all of these autonomous bodies to be as as perfect as possible in some kind of um according to some criteria that <laughs> comes from who knows where um right. yeah. i do think we haven't because one of the things we talked about in our series is the fact that we need to talk about bodies with such an individualistic culture and it's so easy to focus only on our individual bodies but you know paul talks about churches as the body of Christ. Um, and a lot of theologians, recent theologians have, um, in an attempt to help us to engage in a more healthy way with the world have said, you know, let's imagine the world as God's body. Um, how would we treat it? How would we treat the world differently if we saw it as God's body rather than some kind of rental property that we're going to leave when we die? Mm. Um, so I think having a more collective focus, focusing more on the on the body of Christ and seeing how, what forms of healing need to occur to make sure that everyone in our community is is included and honoured and has a voice in our um, in the body that is our body of Christ, rather than healing being a way of um, fixing people that make us feel awkward or whatever it might mm, be. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I remember being you know sitting on my bed as a, gosh, maybe 14-year-old, having been to a healing meeting mm. um, and taking off my glasses and looking mm. at the uh, digital alarm clock that I had on the side of my bed and the numbers were blurry. Mm. And I remember sitting there saying to God, right, <laughs> I've got faith for this, you know, and I'm going to sit here until those numbers become clear, you know. And, and mm. praying earnestly for this healing of my eyes so that um, 
I might be able to see without the aid of glasses. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I sat there very earnestly for as long as I could before inevitably <laughs> drifting off to sleep and waking up in the morning mm. feeling doubly disappointed. Firstly, that yeah. I hadn't had my eyes healed and secondly, that I hadn't been able to hang in there long enough for my faith to really come through. And I, yeah. you know, so a, a yeah. sort of a double self-flagellation. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting thinking about like, you know, by, by what measure is, you know, wanting my eyes to be different than they were, by what, by what measure is that sort of better other than to, to some kind of invented normal mm. status that I'm trying to somehow acquire to, and probably part of it coming from my, from the social nature of, um, of the experience, which was that I got called four eyes at school and, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And I wanted that to yeah. go away. Um, so yeah. again, even there, what, like what needs healing? Is it, is it my yeah. eyes or yeah. is it the, the social um, attitudes towards someone who needed glasses? Obviously a very minor form of uh, disability, which I can see as one that you share. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting yeah, how, how much we want our bodies to be a certain kind of thing, but the certain kind of mm. thing that we want them to be is kind of an imaginary thing that somebody yeah. somewhere just kind of made up, I guess. Yeah. Do you yeah, know what exactly. I mean? Yeah. Totally. And perhaps that connects with the the kind of capitalist consumerist thing you're talking about before in terms of the kind of bodies that we're presented with mm. all the time yeah, uh, and kind of told that we are to have. So this desire, yes, to have shiny bodies, mm. <laughs> metaphorically speaking. I don't... Yeah, that's right. Know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not personally desiring a very shiny body. No. Uh, I don't have the oil about to be no. gathered up. But um, but yeah, th that that kind of mentality that says we want we want this body to behave like we want it to behave, to conform mm. to some kind of mm. thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And if yeah, I mean, I think there are all sorts of ways that we can respond to bodies that are different from ours in ways that mean we don't really have to engage with them or relate or or listen um and healing can be one of those things if someone else's body can become like mine then i don't there's no difference there that i need to understand or mm, yeah, um, yeah inquire about um and we don't want to go to the opposite extreme of um romanticizing mm -hmm of disability mm. this is andrew solomon who wrote this incredible book on difference called far from the tree he he talked about the fact that it's almost like we need this quantum mechanics <laughs> uh, when it comes to things like um identity versus disability you know that like for example with when people who are deaf for so many deaf people that's a strong there's a strong sense of identity there mm. and they don't for someone to say, oh, can I heal you of that? What are you talking about? That's my identity. Why would you want to heal me of my identity? Um, but then there's also forms of disability where people do want healing. They do want change. Mm -hmm. They do want it to be seen as a disability because they want help mm -hmm. to um, to deal with the, the challenges that they they face. So it um, it's very complex. Um, but ultimately, I think if the way that we engage with other bodies is to listen better. Um, that's, I think, a huge leap forward. And mm. if the way that we engage with other bodies is to try to make them the same as us so we don't have to engage with them, I think then we've, we've failed to understand what healing is. Mm. 
one of the things we were talking about before I hit record um, was our struggle with the sense of frailty, perhaps, mm. uh, that we're dealing with at the moment, even in the midst of, mm. a, of a pandemic. Um, do you think that ties into all of this as well somehow? Yeah, no, I do. I do. And I think that, um, I mean, I think there's that passage in Hebrews where it talks about Jesus being the high priest that understands everything about what it is to be human. And that I know Richard Rohr, um, who I'm a huge fan of Franciscan friar in New Mexico. Um, he talks about how much healthier it would be for us to be regularly praying God or vulnerable rather than God almighty. <laughs> um, because I, I do think that, um, so much of the Christianity that we've inherited has, um, cultivated a kind of a contempt for frailty and, and vulnerability and, a need to be um, triumphant and our need for our bodies to be super productive, even if that's sort of productive in ways that are sanctioned by the church and you know, productive in ministry or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, and to accept, I mean, that's a big thing for me as someone that has always had so much kind of capacity right? <laughs> um, to accept that, not only do I have frailty and vulnerability and limits, but that in acknowledging them and allowing them to be a part of the way that I relate to other people, um, that's actually a gift. You know, if, if I'm, if I'm some super productive pastor, um, and setting the bar incredibly high for other people, um, living this unsustainable life, uh, that's unsustainable for me, even as someone with with a large capacity, then I'm really cursing, <laughs> cursing my community by setting this bar impossibly high for them. Whereas a, a pastor that's saying to their community, I have limits, I am vulnerable, I have frailty, I have needs, and I'm going to be able to supply your needs sometimes, but sometimes I'm going to need to ask you to supply mine. Um, that seems to me to be a way of moving towards um, being truly part of a body of Christ rather than um, in kind of some kind of holiness competition with everyone else's autonomous Christians in um, meeting in a building. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the, the holiness with an H competition. Mm. Um, <laughs> well reincorporated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, the sense, of, and I resonate, you know, my earlier life of faith and spirituality was very much shaped by that that struggle and that strive to perform better essentially mm. and mm. across every metric I could kind of think of yeah. whether that was yeah. um, the more spiritual matters uh, or yeah just the way generally I should be um, mm. living my life my best life my best life mm. now um, mm. yeah that that sense of kind of um, drivenness to to be this particular um, invulnerable, in, mm. you know, aspirational figure, which I was always very bad at being, um, mm. but <laughs> but but tried to be, you know, that that's quite a different mentality from from what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Mm. And, and again, you know, we haven't talked too much about 
the body of Christ or or the world, but the the way that our culture and how autonomous we all are and how allergic we all are to being dependent on in any way mm. and how much we're encouraged to be self-sufficient um, production machines. Um, I think it, yeah, it's incredibly important for us to realise how difficult all that makes forming community. Uh, the thing I say to our community a lot is, um, yeah, the struggle for us is is not just to continue as community, but to work out can we even be community in the kind of culture of autonomy mm. that we that we have. And I think it, um, these things relate. You know, if if we can somehow break down these unhealthy relationships that we have with our own body, then it increases our capacity to be. Um, to be able to form community with other people because compassion and vulnerability are essential elements. Um, mm. And it, yeah, it's just so, so incredibly difficult to form and sustain true community in the kind of culture that we live in now. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting to think about how those things are so interconnected that, mm. um, that real community does, there is a, a to use that word perichoresis, you know, the kind of Trinitarian word, but there is that kind of perichoretic uh, flow yeah. between between yeah. our own bodies and the bodies of others as well in, in terms of the forming community with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, I think when we when we lack compassion or vulnerability or the ability to listen or tune into our own bodies, then mm. What, mm. what chance have we got of being able to enter into engagement with other people and, and, and experience and, and demonstrate and and share that same sense of compassion and vulnerability and listening and, you know, all of that with others, um, Mm. which really are the the bedrock of what human community Mm. is. Um, In terms of, in terms of going out then, let's let's think for a moment about the the world Mm. as the body. How do we, Mm. how do we see that then filtering out to that third way of thinking about uh, embodiment? Yeah. Well, I think um, a big part of it is, is for me, or one big shift is, is what I was talking about before, that I think we've been encouraged to see the earth as like a, like I said, like a rental property and that we're occupying for a short time before God plucks our souls out and, you know, puts, puts them into the mansion that God has prepared for us in this other, this holy other spiritual place um whereas if if we see us heading towards a new heavens and a new earth a new creation where there is um perhaps more continuity than discontinuity then suddenly we can see what we're doing here and how we're engaging with the earth as eternally significant um, because we are um part of god moving creation towards this form of of transformation Mm. Um, and so rather than just kind of exploiting the earth um in the way that we kind of exploit and control our own bodies Mm. we can start to to love it um and i think that's where 
um, the engagement, the increased engagement with, with so many communities with Indigenous spirituality um, is, is such a, a healthy shift to realise that um, for, you know, in, in where I live, the Wurundjeri people are the Indigenous people of um, the land where our church meets and that um, that relationship of stewardship, of love, that, you know, that human beings are there to care for the land and to be the agents of its flourishing rather than just explo- exploiting it mm. um, is um, not only a much kinder relationship with the earth, but as, as we move into increased climate change and, you know, global extinction event with other species, we realise that it's essential that mm. unless we radically transform our relationship with the earth, and stop treating it as a limitless resource, but see it as, you know, this beautiful creation that we are here to to care for and to listen to. Um, then, the earth might be all right, but we won't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's. Um, I mean the the connection seems so clear as we're mm. talking here between how we see our own bodies and how we and, and treat them and how we see and treat the world as a body. Mm. Um, you know, we we either ignore or control or exploit or, or drive our own bodies mm. uh, in order for some kind of productivity or consumption or gain or, or mm. um, whatever it might be. And and that's exactly what we do to the to the earth itself, right? That's exactly mm. what we do to the to the world. As, mm. And if we think about that, um, then just as thinking about my own embodiment helps me connect to a sense of other bodies and the body of Christ and mm. building community, mm. it also helps us to start to think about the world as God's body, um, mm. this kind of in, much more integrated way of thinking. You know, perhaps it's no surprise that it's mm. um, the kind of mind-body split that we see in Western mm. um, faith and philosophical constructs that has you know meant that we're disconnected from our own bodies and also that we treat the earth as this endless resource which it isn't um Mm. and within other yeah other worldviews that are much more integrated um both of those problems then are not present um so these these things are very interconnected in the way that we think about it are there some ways that you as we kind of head towards uh, a close. Are there some ways you think about um, some other ways? Perhaps you think about cultivating a a good, not even sure "good's" the right word, but a but a, a healthy um, sense of embodiment in our lives. Um, I know you mm. you've been talking in your community about but the idea of like play, the importance of play to mm. the body and things like that. Could you speak to that for for a moment yeah. before we sort of finish? Um, yeah, I think. I mean, the first thing that I would say is I think that um, the act of, of listening, I think listening to our own bodies, whether that's through meditation um, and, you know, the kind of body scan meditation where you kind of focus on each part of your body and um, but also focusing on you know, the way that our body holds emotion and, you know, engaging with that. Um, and I, I know during the lockdowns that we've had here, my girls and I have done a lot of walking around the neighborhood and um, I guess starting to 
to listen to the location that we find ourselves in more carefully and noticing and being able to name all the birds and um, mm. being able to name more of the the plants and being able to to see when they're healthy and when they're not and so all I think all of that um, is a way towards greater greater listening to to the self and to the body um, and you know within community I think there's lots of scope for that um, cultivating better listening more conversation and less monologues in church as well mm. um, but as for play. Um, yeah, we spent a week in our series talking about the fact that, you know, Jesus was for his culture, incredibly welcoming and affirming of children and seeing that, you know, the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven was as a child, um, and reflecting on the fact that for children, um, the work of children is play, uh, and, um, yeah, there's a, German theologian uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who has a whole book on the theology of play, talking about the fact that, you know, in the garden before the fall, um, Adam and Eve's work was play. Uh, they didn't need to do anything. So anything that they did was a choice to, to enjoy God's creation. Um, and Moltmann would say that that's where we're headed as well. And the new heavens and the new earth, it will be um, play and enjoyment of God's creation without that. Um, obsessive need to um, to work and and produce and so from that anything that moves towards a more playful engagement with life has to be more reflective of where we've come from and where we're heading um, mm. and it's one of the beautiful things about having children I think it it, it can break down that kind of Overly, I mean, we've we've been having such a serious conversation about all of these things, but that kind of breaking down of that over seriousness. Mm. Um, I mean, play is a very, very serious business for children, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but to to realise that we're when we're in a state of play, whether it's with our children or but or with our friends, um, there's this incredible sense of of flow and being in the body, um, which is so life giving. And mm. right now. Um, during lockdown, during this pandemic, we're spending so much time, you know, thinking anxiously about the future. Um, and so it can, I think, serve an incredibly healing mm. role to try to cultivate spaces of, of play and um, flow and presence. Um, I think it just, yeah, it's a very healing thing for the mm. body to be able to do that. Mm. A couple of things come to mind in terms of having a two-year-old in the house. Um, one is you find yourself doing the dishes and then, you know, you're like, uh, uh, <laughs> and um, and then there's a little two-year-old going, I want to do it too. I want to help. I want to help. And you're like, why do you want to help do the dishes for? Is it, but he hasn't learned that it's a job yet. Mm, like that's right. It's, it, it would, what an exciting opportunity to play with the mm. water and the, and the brush. Yeah. Um, and to scrub these things, um, and it's just this kind of yeah, this reminder of of how we learn to see the world, and of course, there's a I guess there's a part of that that's a, the inevitable part of of growing up and having mm. to deal with different realities and responsibilities yeah. and so on. But but there is also this kind of lovely idea there that um, 
that there's probably some of those things we've learned that we could unlearn about how yeah, we see different them. things that that we do. Uh, the other mm. thing is that you know I've, I I end up on the down on the floor. I don't know making a tower out of blocks with him, mm. and at some point he loses interest and wanders off, and I'm still there, you know, making my little tower. Mm. And then I have this moment of like, hang on, I'm just sitting here playing with blocks in the lounge. Um, this is a bit silly because um, yeah. he's gone, mm. uh, and yet <laughs> until I had that thought that oh this is silly i was totally yeah. engrossed in like making this little tower out of blocks mm. um, yeah. <laughs> and just because i've again learned that that's a silly thing to do rather than a fun mm. thing to do um then i'm like i should stop doing this until he comes back um rather than actually being able to yeah again just embrace the fact that maybe maybe just sitting here and playing with these blocks is what i need right now yeah uh, i don't know that's kind of it's um yeah it's just it strikes me as and, and so much of our church lives are oriented away from play i think mm. or in a way away from kids probably too um a lot of the time for in, in many churches yeah. um yeah, totally. we sort of yeah tempted to center the important conversations that are happening between the adults mm. about important things uh and and the kind of ability to break that up mm. with the, the interruption of something more playful is is yeah. a is an intriguing and wonderful kind of idea. Mm. Yeah, and sure, yeah, you're right. I mean, children call us back to our bodies all the time, mm. um, and if we were able to put children more at the centre of our communities, I think that would really help us to um, to bring our bodies back to the centre as well. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, is there any any final thing you feel like you wanted to say but you haven't said? Or do you feel okay about that? Oh, I feel okay. Yeah, this is nice. This is fun. Yeah. Thanks. No, thank you. And um, mm. appreciate you taking the time in your lockdown in Melbourne to talk to me in my lockdown in Auckland. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>